Spirit of the living God, we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus this morning that the truth we've just sung of, that you will apply it to our hearts in that our minds will understand even more of this great salvation that Jesus has purchased for us. We pray in his name, amen. I invite you now to be seated and to take your uh, Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4, the uh, passage that uh, Phil read for us. You notice that Phil just took two portions of Acts 3 and 4. It's a very uh, long passage, a lengthy story, and um, I'm just going to take a a number of things from this passage today as we head uh, uh, segue into the Lord's table and our remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. Um, Two Sundays ago, Pastor Jamie Uh, was preaching and he brought us to the end of chapter 2 in the book of Acts where Luke gives to us this um, wonderful picture, it's like a snapshot, it's like a cameo of what the early church was like in Jerusalem. And uh, Jamie reminded us that this was the original disciple-making community that God had raised up by the power of the Holy Spirit. You and I are disciples of Jesus. We too, as a local church, are a disciple-making community. That is our mission. And uh, he pointed out that this disciple-making community, according to Acts 2 verse 42, was devoted to a number of things. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, he mentions there the breaking of bread, and prayer. And uh, Jamie underscored the truth that the Early church met on a regular basis for the breaking of bread. In other words, they remembered the Lord's death continually. It was a part of their worship life. It was a part of their community life. It was a part of making disciples of the Lord Jesus in that we need to reflect constantly, continuously, on what Jesus has done for us in the cross. And then they devoted themselves to prayer. And interestingly, in this story here in Acts 3, We have an illustration of their devotion to prayer because it says in verse 1, one day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. So here we see an example of the apostles in their devotion to prayer on a regular basis. But not only does chapter 3 illustrate this devotion, it also illustrates what Luke says in Acts chapter 2 verse 43. Look at verse 43, Acts 2. 43, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And now we have the story of a crippled man, a lame man. And this is one of the miraculous signs that the apostles did. You know the story, it was read for us today. Peter and John are going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. A man who's been crippled from birth, in Acts chapter four, it actually tells us that he had been crippled for 40 years. He was 40 years old. And so he was carried every day to this gate called the Beautiful Gate, which was the, the gate, the various gates of the city of Jerusalem. This was the closest to the temple courts. And there he would sit as people were coming into the temple courts, and he would beg in order to get money to sustain his life. And so this is what we see here. And Peter looks at him, John looks at him, the lame man looks at them. They, they lock eyes for this, for this moment. And this well-known statement is said. Peter says, silver and gold, we don't have any of that. But in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. 
and he rose up and he walked. His ankles were strengthened, his legs were strengthened, and a miracle, it says in verse 7, instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. I want to point out four things today uh, from this passage as a segue into the Lord's table. First of all, I want you to keep this in mind, that what happened here in Acts 3 is really a continuation of the ministry of Jesus. Remember, Acts 1 verse 1 says that Luke recorded in the first gospel that he wrote all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So this is a continuation of the ministry of Jesus. In other words, this miracle is a prophecy fulfilled. Now, why do I say, I say that? Well, I say that because Isaiah the prophet, writing 700, 800 years before Christ, he said that when the Messiah came, miracles would happen. And in Isaiah chapter 35, Isaiah said that the, the age of the Messiah would be characterized by the ushering in of miraculous signs. And specifically in Isaiah 35, it says, then the lame will leap like a deer. Now, that's exactly what's happening in this passage because the man just didn't get up and walk. If you look at verse 8, it says specifically, specifically that he began to jump. He was leaping. I think we've all seen the picture of a deer before. We, many of us have seen this ourselves as we're driving. We've seen a deer jump over a fence or leap across uh, a car on the road. We, we've seen this before, and this is what the man was, was doing. This wasn't a slowly coming to life of the man's ankles and legs. This was instantaneous strength. And so Isaiah tells us that this would be the characterization of the ministry of the Messiah. You remember when John the Baptist was in prison? He grew increasingly depressed, and he began to doubt whether Jesus was the one the Messiah. And so he sent word via his disciples to Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? And Jesus said to John's disciples, he didn't, he didn't say, go back and say to John, yes, I am. What he said, go back and say to John, the blind can see and the lame can walk. And John would have understood immediately because John would have known Isaiah chapter 35. So this is a prophecy fulfilled. Secondly, there is in this story, in this crippled man, a picture of us, a picture of us. Now keep in mind, Luke could have recorded a lot of the miracles that the apostles did, but he, would, was, he was choosing only some, selecting some. And he chooses to tell this, and I think because it is a picture of us. Because look at verse 2. Verse, verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2, says the man was lame or crippled from birth. From birth. Now, it's not a picture of us. Because, because when we are born, we're, we're essentially lame at birth. We're essentially crippled at birth. I'm not talking about we're infants and therefore we can't walk. We have no strength in our ankles or legs because our born, bones are forming. That's not what I mean. But we are crippled from birth in that we, we are born as sinners. David said, in sin my mother conceived me, meaning in, in my birth what was passed on to me was the nature of my mother and the nature of my father. We're crippled from birth and that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're born into sin. And if you have any doubt about, about that, well, just, just, 
Just think of yourself, or if you're, if you're parents, just think of your kids. Did you ever have to give them a lesson on how to lie? No, they, they just kind of picked up on it pretty easy, right? Children don't need to be taught how to lie. They, it, it just comes rather naturally to them. And that, that's, that's what I'm saying. We're crippled from birth. We're spiritually dead from birth because this sin nature which we inherited from our parents and which they got from their parents before them which goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, that sin nature is passed on to us in life because this is a part of what God's judgment on the human race when sin came into the world. And so death has come as well. And we're all crippled from birth. Now some of you might say, well John, you're just kind of spiritualizing this passage. You're taking a, a physical healing of a lame man and you're making it into a salvation story. Yes, I am. And I'm I'm doing it for a reason because that's essentially what the Apostle Peter does. The Apostle Peter does the same thing in this passage. He, he, he points out to everyone, look at, look, at, look at this man, this man who was crippled from birth, and he turns it around on application to everyone. So go to chapter 4, verse 10. Then know this, you and everyone else in Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you completely healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone or the cornerstone. Look at verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Not healed, but saved. So Peter takes this healing, and, and essentially it's a miraculous sign. It points to something more than just the physical healing. He says this healing is, 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 a, is a sign to you that Jesus not only heals, Jesus can save you. Peter, in a sense, spiritualizes it and makes it about salvation. But this, 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 this cripple is, is like us in more than one ways or one than, than just being crippled from birth because as sinners, we're always looking for solutions to our, prob our problems in life. And, and, and it's like we're missing God in the whole pic pic picture. And this man, he just, he's begging for money. He thinks Peter and John hopefully have some cash to help him out, that that will solve the issues that he's really facing. And while that was probably no doubt his felt need, that was not his real need. He needed more. And Peter dashes his hope because he says, silver and gold, I don't have any of that. Do you know what's interesting? If you read the Old Testament, if you come to the book of Leviticus chapter 21, it says some, something about blind people and lame people and people with physical defect. And it says in the Old Testament law that, that they were not allowed access into, in, into the courts, into the temple courts. They were excluded. Now, that sounds rather harsh to our, to our ears, but, but essentially God kind of used them as a picture of the fact that, that if, we, if we are sinners, we, we don't have access. We're not accepted by God. We can't get in because our sin has cut us off. But the moment the man is healed, look at, look at what it says in chapter three, verse, verse eight. He jumped to his feet, began to walk, then he went with them, where? Into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. He went into the temple courts, not accepted, now accepted. 
reconciled, once separated, now joined together with God. So this story, this man, is a picture of our condition and a picture of what salvation in Jesus is all about. That brings me to the third thing I want to say, and that is this passage also reveals to us the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we think of the power of Jesus, what we need to keep in mind is that the power of Jesus is associated in in Acts chapter 3 and 4 with the name of Jesus. And what I want you to see is that this whole passage underscores the power of Jesus, the uniqueness of Jesus. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. Silver or gold I do not have, but what I give you, what I have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Now look at verse 16. Chapter 3, 16. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you all can see. So three times the name of Jesus is mentioned. Now go down again to chapter 4. Now Peter's in front of the, um, the, the big religious, the, the religious big shots of Jerusalem who are upset at what Peter and John have done. And Peter speaks up and he says in verse 10, then know this, you and everyone else in Israel, it is by the name, there's the phrase again, the word again, the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you completely healed. Now verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men, given to men by which we must be saved. It's, he's underscoring the truth of the power of the name of Jesus, that Jesus is absolutely unique. There's no one like him. Only Jesus can do this, is essentially what Peter is saying. Now I want you to come back with me. I want to go back 30 years. Um, uh, when I was a young, a young man in 1992, I guess I would have been about 35 years of age at that time, and in May, sorry, in March of that year, uh, in May of that year, I was ordained as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've been a pastor or an ordained pastor for three months at this point in time. And in August of 1992, 30 years ago, an article appeared in the Toronto Star. And the article was entitled, A Church Abandons Arrogance. Written by the Reverend Bruce McLeod, who at that point in time was the moderator of the United Church of Canada. And Bruce McLeod, in the article, A Church Abandons Arrogance, said this, that statements in the Bible, now remember, I'm a young pastor at this time, and I'm reading this, and he says, and he's much more older than I am at that point, he says, statements in the Bible that ascribe absolute supremacy to Jesus, like Acts chapter 4, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else except him, are simply convictional, convictional. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, what he meant was it's, it's, it was Peter's conviction, but it's not necessarily true. That's what he meant. 
It's like, uh, my wife isn't here, but at the nine o'clock service, she was seated right over there, and I embarrassed her and embarrassed myself by saying that, that I, I'll make the statement, just imagine she's sitting there. My wife, Andrea, is the best cook in the world in cooking rice and peas. You know, you know rice and, Teresa, you know what rice and peas, anybody here not know what rice and peas are? Like you guys haven't lived. You haven't lived. Rice and peas is a Jamaican dish. And when you get rice and peas, if you get it with jerk chick, chicken, like the chicken's just a nice add-on, and, and you, you smother rice and peas with oxtail gravy. Oh. My stomach is already, you know. So I made a statement. My, my wife is, is the best cooker of rice and peas in the whole world. That's my conviction. Is it necessarily true? I said, I'm sure there are cooks way better than my wife. That's what I said at 9 o'clock. And so, so pray for me this week because I will, I will probably be 10 to 15 pounds lighter when you see me next Sunday morning. You see, it's, it's, it's what I believe about my wife, but, 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 but she's, this, she's not the best cook in the world, but she cooks rice and peas good. It's just my conviction. It's not verifiably true. That's what Bruce McLeod said about the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ. That Peter was just telling us what he thinks. Well, what do you do with what Jesus thinks about himself when he says in John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Is Jesus just speaking convictionally there? Is Jesus a little deranged in terms of what he thinks about himself? Has he got this highfalutin idea of who he is that doesn't square with reality? You follow what I'm saying? So what do we do with a statement like this? Well, the United Church of Canada, friends, says that this is just what you think, but it's not necessarily true. You see, people today see a statement like this as negative. And so, over all of the, over all of the dogmatic statements in the Word of God is cast a cloud of uncertainty. All of the dogmatic statements in the Word of God are equated with arrogance and bigotry. It's negative. How can you say that? But the Bible sees it as positive. Actually, if you look, look carefully at Acts chapter 4, verse 12. I want you to notice that there is something negative in the verse. There are two negative statements that are made in this verse, but the two negative statements actually speak to something positive. And what does Peter say? Salvation is found in no one else. There's the first negative that's said. No one else. No one else. That's a negative statement. Second one, for there is no other name. Second negative statement. Under heaven, given to men by which we must be saved. In other words, those two negative state, state, statements actually point out something about Jesus. There is no other, there's no one else, there's no other name. They actually proclaim the positive uniqueness of Jesus Christ. 
Now, why would Peter come to a conclusion such as this, which church leaders even today would say is a statement of arrogance? Well, look, look, at, look at what Peter says about Jesus. Go back to chapter 3, verse, verse 13. He's preaching in Jerusalem, and what, and what does he say? This is just after the healing has happened. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. Now, this phrase, servant, Peter is is borrowing from the prophet Isaiah who wrote about the suffering servant who would come, Jesus. Isaiah chapter 52, Isaiah chapter 53, behold my servant, he will act wisely, and what will the servant do? He will atone for the sins of the world. He will die on the cross, according to Isaiah. Jesus is the servant of God. You handed him over to be killed, it says, and and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. Verse 14, you disowned the holy and righteous one. Who is Jesus? He's the servant of God. Who else is he? He's the holy and righteous one. And you ask that a murderer be released to you. Verse 15, who is Jesus? You killed, he says to the crowd there, the author of life. He's the author of life. He's the creator himself. But God raised him from the dead. He's the risen one. Death could not hold Jesus in the grave. That's why in verse 16 he says, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him. As you can all see. And then he goes on. And look at verse 22, for Moses said, that is about Jesus, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he says. Jesus is the prophet according to Moses. He's the final of all of God's prophets, the prophet of all the prophets. And Peter makes it clear if you look at verse 18 that he's the Messiah. But this is how God fulfilled what he foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ, his Messiah, would what? Suffer. And according to verse 19, he's the one who can take away our sins because he can wipe them out, because he is the one who has suffered on the cross for us. So when Peter says salvation is founded in no one else and there's no other name under heaven, Peter is essentially saying, listen, he's the servant, he's the author of life, he's the holy and righteous one, he's the prophet, he's the Messiah. In other words, there is no one else who possesses the qualifications that Jesus has. And therefore, salvation is found in no one else. Now, I want to just make a little rabbit trail here for a moment because I want to go and segue to the Lord's table this morning, but this needs to be said, and it's a part of our series now from the book of Acts. We're looking at disciple-making in the book of Acts. So is there an application point here for us who are disciples of Jesus and for our mission of disciple-making? And I think there is. I think it's leaping right out of the page. Disciples. Are you a disciple? Disciples are not to be embarrassed by the positive uniqueness of Jesus. Disciples are not to abandon the positive uniqueness of Jesus. 
How can we claim to be disciples of Jesus who are in a disciple-making mission to get others to follow Jesus if we want to just jettison the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ? No, we cannot do that. Rather, we must embrace as disciples and proclaim as disciple-makers the positive uniqueness of Jesus. Amen. Now, one final thing. There are some promises here in this passage, and they're found in chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. They're promises to those of us who have received salvation in Jesus Christ. So, if you believe that Jesus is, is the Savior of the world, that there's salvation in no one else, and you believe that with all of your heart, then Peter gives us in this passage three promises, and they're wonderful. Look at what he says. Verse 19, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. I like that. Not just one sin, not just a few of them, but that your sins may be wiped out. Friends, it is our sins that separate us from a holy God. And Jesus' death on the cross wipes out our sins. This means that you and I, if we believe in Jesus, we are promised reconciliation. We are reconciled with the living God because our sins are wiped out. But that's not all. Then he says in verse 19, the times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And isn't this a wonderful promise? And it's, it's true. It's a, it's a blessing we experience. And I don't know about you, but I'm experiencing it this morning. At the nine o'clock services, I saw people come to the front and receive this bread and receive this cup. My heart was overwhelmed with refreshing from the Holy Spirit as I saw these are God's people coming to the front, the redeemed of Jesus Christ, washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and my heart was refreshed. You see, God gives his spirit to us when we believe in him. He takes away our sins. He gives us his very life. His presence, His power, and, and with that come, come all of the wonderful experiences of God on a weekly basis, the ability to overcome sin, the, the power inwardly to, to live a life that is pleasing to God and to become more like the Lord Jesus. These are the times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. And friends, these things are, are simply a foretaste. The, the Bible calls these things the first fruits. The Holy Spirit was given as, as, it were, as the first fruit of the salvation that we will receive because he's now in us as the guarantee of all that is going to come. This is a foretaste. Now we can know what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But then, at the end of time, when Christ returns, then the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that's the third promise that he makes here in verse 20, that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus, he must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything. Restoration. You see, we are his new creation, created in Christ Jesus. But this new creation that we know already, that we've got a foretaste of, this new creation will blossom at the coming of Christ, and there will be a great resurrection, and God is going to restore all of creation to what he originally intended it to be. And this will happen when Jesus comes. 
And you and I will receive bodies like the Lord Jesus and we will be completely restored. We will finally live in physical bodies that no longer succumb to the things of this world, to the diseases and the viruses and the sin of this world. We will on that day be completely free. And this is a promise to all who believe in the Lord Jesus and have received salvation in him, the only Savior of the world. You see, friends, this story of the cripple, the lame man who walks, illustrates all three of these things because he was finally reconciled to God. He got into the temple courts where he could commune with God. He was praising God. He was refreshed by the presence and power of the Lord Jesus, and he was restored to full health and strength in his legs. A wonderful illustration of these three promises and blessings that are ours if we believe in the Lord Jesus. These promises are for you if you truly believe in him and he is your Savior. One phrase that we use quite a bit here in the church, and it's a lovely phrase, it includes the words, come or came to Christ. Somebody came to Christ. I came to Christ. As you streamed up to the front this morning, in a sense, all of us were coming to Christ. And uh, think of the words of what Jesus said. Remember, he said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He invites us, come to me, all of you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you, give you rest. The Bible concludes with the invitation to come. Listen to these words, and then the final benediction we have in God's word. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. He, to, he who testifies to these things says, come. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with all of God's people. Amen.